Um, let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning and just the privilege to be here. Uh, Jesus, we, after last week, I know I was each Passover, each Easter, each sunrise service, each, each time, each year, it's more meaningful to me. The reality that you are a risen Lord, that you are not in the grave anymore. Nobody's there. And because of that, we live into the truth of what you said. Because of your resurrection last week, uh, that we celebrated last week, I should say, because of your resurrection, Lord, we be resurrected. Not just in an end-time scenario where our bodies are resurrected. Oh, that's going to be good for those who know you. And, and, but Lord... We're going to be resurrected each day. Lord, I'm being resurrected. You'll resurrect different parts of me that have been dead or dying. Lord, you can do that to me today. And Lord, I'm praying that you'll do that with all of us. As we go through your word, Lord, it is your word that we treasure as much as, Lord, you are your word. So thank you. Holy Spirit, thank you for being here. Amen. Amen. Well, I, I was thinking about this week because now we, are, now we are officially launching into Ephesians chapter 6. And I was thinking about this week and I was thinking, slavery? Children obeying your parents? I mean, what are you going to do with this? And there's a tendency when you're going line by line, when you get to some difficult things, to skip over it. Controversial things, skip over it. And boy, did I want to, but... Uh, in spending more time and really thinking this through this week, I think there's some transcendent truths that we're going to get into this morning, as is always the case. The Word gives life. The Word gives life. You know, so uh, I, I, I do need to say that we're going to be talking about submission. We're going to be talking about obedience. Uh, great. What a great topic for a sermon, right? Everybody's going to be so uplifted. Obedience and submission. And, wow. Just fantastic. Um, I do know that many of you have suffered. You've suffered physical abuse through, quote-unquote, submission to a parent. Many of you have suffered emotional abuse in your lives. And when you hear words like obedience and submission, you just want to run. And I don't blame you. Many of you have uh, encountered spiritual abuse in your lives. And that can be some of the most brutal, quite frankly, spiritual abuse. And so there's, there's a knee-jerk reaction to when we hear these words to say, not me, not again. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I'm not going to go down this road again. But can I open your minds to this idea of submission? It's not even, even going to come up up here. I was just thinking it's absolutely imperative that we go to Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Many of you will know it well. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 there's two things that we're always trying to do here at Church of the Red Door. Whether you are aware of it or not, we may be a guest here today, not know. Two things that we're trying to really get to, and they're simple, and yet they're staggeringly complex in, in, the, in the ways in which they work themselves out in our own lives. Uh, Jesus was very clear uh, in 6.33, if I can ever get there. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. What all things? Well, everything they've been talking about. Everybody, everything that you came in here concerned about this morning, all those things will be added to you. Let me be clear. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. There's two things that if you were to say, what is the overall objective of Church at the Red Door? Two things. To seek his rule and reign in our lives, trusting that he is the only righteous king and the only one worthy of living into. Lord, Lord, that is your kingdom. As in it expands, it gives life to those who live under you. There is no political system that will ever work. I don't care what, how you look at it. One may be slightly better than the other. You know, and you've heard me say this. I'm, it's often quoted by Winston Churchill. Democracy is the worst form of government that there ever has been, except for all the others. <laughs> and it's true. But... Look, the nations will always be in an uproar. What Jesus offered when he began to proclaim and what John the Baptist was proclaiming before that is that the kingdom of heaven is among you. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, 
it's too marginal to even make a distinction there. It would be more of a Jewish perspective anyway. But the kingdom of God is at hand. That's where God comes in and invades your life and begins to rule and reign in your life. And you willingly, as we'll see in a little bit, you willingly take the form of a bond slave. And you said, it's better off with you than where I was. And so I willingly, I willingly submit to you. I willingly do that. That's the kingdom of God. But the second part is, and his righteousness. The second part of what we do in here is... And what I do every day, I mean, it's going to be my task today. I want to be conformed to the image of Jesus because he is our righteousness. So I want to look like Jesus and I want to live in submission to the Godhead. Those two things say, what's Church at the Red Door about? It's not about cat juggling or any strange little thing that we would come up with entertainment-wise. It's nothing of that. Want two things, seeking first the rule and the reign of God and becoming more like Jesus, looking like him more and more each day those two things. So with that said, as a backdrop, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 through 9. I'm going to read it all, and then we're going to go back and pick this apart a little bit this morning. Some very, very difficult passages of Scripture. I'm going to speak quite a bit about slavery here in a minute, and I want you to know that we are not talking about our optics on slavery, and rightfully so, are the American experience. It was a horror show. It, cost, it was a civil war. Because of it, there was a horror show. It was an abomination before God. Let's, let's absolutely make very clear, straight up, in terms of the American experience with slavery. And we're going to try to make a distinction between biblical slavery, although it included some of that. It's called chattel slavery. It's like property. It's ownership. It's a, it was the greatest. Well, we, we will pay for this for a long time and continue to pay for this. And it was an abomination before God. With that in mind, let me read. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And I don't think I have one of my kids here. I hope they watch this on live stream. (laughs) Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling. I'm just just telling you, some of you, I'm reacting to this. I react to it every time I read it. I struggle with this, and and we're going to talk about this this morning. How can this be in the Bible? Does the Bible support slavery? Again, your optics on slavery are different than the Pax Romana and the optics that they would have had when this was being written. Having said that, there were some similarities in some ways, and it's important to know that. In the sincerity of your heart, as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters do the same things to them and give, them, give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Now, let me tell you something. This is one that you want to skip over if you're a pastor. I mean, you're going to skip right over that. Or we're going to downplay it so much and just make it a metaphor for what Paul would call himself later, Paul, a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll see in a minute in the Greek here, the doulos, this word is a, is, can be a debt obligation, a bondman, uh, if you will. And so, but it's more than that. It was more than that in Rome, and we need to be honest and talk about that and then say, well, why is there not some great manifesto about slavery here in the Bible? Does God not care? Does, could not God foresee into the future this abomination that was our slavery issue here in America? Could he have not seen that and then made some kind of, you know, something for us that we could cling to rather than having to wade through this and defend the Bible in some historical context and and be challenged with it, but there is much to learn here. So let's first deal with this first passage about children and obedience to parents. Uh, <clears throat> Jeff Hopper and I wrote a book a number of years back called Love Never Fails because our, one of the primary issues we deal with is with, and many of you can attest to this, uh, your grown children who do not know Jesus. It's probably one of the most challenging things. Once you begin to walk and experience the love of Jesus, his kingdom and his righteousness, having children that don't walk with him in an intimate and personal way. And I see many of your heads nodding even now. It's such a challenge, and it's one of the great plagues, really, of, of this demographic, especially when, and I see people growing like crazy in Christ, and yet they feel like they're leaving their children behind. 
we always felt an obligation to speak to that issue. And I speak as there rarely goes a week goes by when I'm not praying for with someone about their own adult children. Children at home are one thing, but adult children are different. And how so? Well, when you're at home, parents need to instruct and discipline and children need to obey. That changes when they leave. There's this leave and cleave principle. Some of you know my, my oldest daughter is getting married here in June. And she will leave us and she will cleave to her husband. She's no longer obligated to obey us. She is forever obligated to honor us as I am honored, as I am obligated and love to do, by the way, to honor my own parents who both happen to be, both happen to be still living. And so that's what this is talking about. But when they're gone from home, children again honor. But parents, what do parents do? I would say two things. Parents need to do this. As for your adult children, you need to be their greatest cheerleader, even if they're living in sin. You don't have to, you don't have to encourage them in their sin, but you need to know, they need to know that you love them and that they are your kids forever, irrespective of what decisions that they're making. You still need to be there for them. Don't cut them off. Love them, encourage them, but never, never enable them to continue in a trajectory that will lead them away from God. So don't be an enabler. So to be an encourager, but how do you do this the best? How do you encourage your kids the best? Not just verbally, it's how you live your life. You want to be an encourager to your kids? You be transformed by Christ. You take on the righteousness of God in Christ. You do those things. You and you've heard me probably say this, some of you, as, you, as I've taught this, but it, it hit me on a plane once. They're always, okay, when the, if the oxygen has to fall down, make sure to put the oxygen over your mouth first and then over your kids. And that has to be the case. You have to do that. You have to be spiritually reconnected with the Father. You cannot give out what you don't possess, period. You just cannot. So as you live full out for God without hypocrisy, and we all live in some degree of hypocrisy, I think, but as we move towards really, really living out God's call in our life, guess what happens with our kids? Even if they don't say anything, they observe. And then you continue to encourage and love them, it will eventually have an impact on their lives. I'm telling you, even if it's after the time that you're gone from this brief life. Saw it happen over. I've seen it happen over and over. Children who give their lives to Christ after their parent dies, having witnessed a life well lived. That should be encouragement for some of you. It really should. So what is this whole thing about submission in general? Well, first of all, you need to know that there was submission within the Godhead. You just need to know this. There was submission within the Godhead. Now, these are some big words, and I'm not trying to impress you at all, but there's something theologians called, (laughs) catch this, an economic or a relational subjugation or submission, and then an ontological subjugation or submission. And what does that mean? Well, there is no, in terms of the substance of God and the nature of God, there's no distinction between Father, Son, and Spirit. Okay, they are all the same substance. One is not necessarily born of the other, didn't exist, owes their, uh, owes their reality to... The, Jesus doesn't owe his reality to the Father. He coexisted eternally with the Father. So ontologically, in term, ontologically just means the substance of the nature of being. What that means is in terms of their nature, they're the same. But there is an economic or a relational submission or subjugation that happens... Jesus was subjected to the Father. As you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, nevertheless, not my will, Father, but thy will be done. And some people would say, see, he's subordinate to, and therefore lesser than. No, subordinate to in terms of this relational subjugation, but not, again, ontologically, not in terms of their nature, just as this is how it flows. And we'll see a correspondence to that in the body of Christ as well. That's important to understand. The Holy Spirit does then the bidding, if you will, of Jesus. And there's this, there's this beautiful co-submission that happens within the Godhead and always has. And that's what we should find in the context of a church as well. That's important to know. Hebrews chapter 13. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Who has that on their refrigerator? You know, that's one of my favorite verses. For they keep watch over your souls. Have you ever even thought of that? That there are maybe spiritual leaders in your life who actually care about the trajectory of your life and have an obligation. And it doesn't just have to be a pastor. 
I mean, there are so many gifted people in here that care. I see this cross-pollination happening all the time, which you see people caring, truly caring about how the well-being of especially people who are new into the faith and are just coming to Christ. I can count dozens and dozens of you who intentionally every week get up and you have a deep and compassionate concern about the spiritual well-being and the spiritual formation of those that God has in some ways put under your care and you don't have any title whatsoever. And I applaud you. I'm amazed at you when I see people like that, that you can just see. They just see spiritual need and they step in as a spiritual father or mother and they just start doing it. No fanfare, no title on a business card, nobody's getting paid. They just do the work of Christ. It's powerful. And they are in that way your leaders. Now, I do understand their, their leadership roles within the context of the giftings of the body of Christ. <clears throat> But he said, they keep watch over your souls. Those who will give an account. There are people in my life that I know that I will give an account for my challenge and my task to watch over their souls. I am not God. Don't get me wrong. I'm not. Don't misread this. But there is a deep passion to see spiritual formation happen. And it's not really any different than if you're walking along and you see an infant lying on in the right there on the concrete, and it's a 115-degree day, and you walk by and go, oh, I wonder where their mother is, and just keep walking. That same culpability we should feel in the spirit when we see people that are spiritual infants and need some direction. They think some wild things because our whole culture is so full. It's, a, it's just a big amalgam of just amalgamation of just so many different ideas and weird thoughts about God and spirituality and everything, and they're, they're really just infants, and yet you can see them having a, a thirst for Christ. You can see them what he's doing, and you walk by them, and you just happen to be the one that was walking by them at the time, and God says, take care of that person. Watch over that person. He says, let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Now, so in a secular sense, in a secular uh, arena, this means obviously just living under the rule of law. If we, go, we don't have time, but Romans 13, if you want to read those first eight or nine verses, you can see that God has set up the institution of the law, the, the strong arm of the law within rulers and then governing authorities, as we'll see in a little bit. That's for our benefit. Would you want it to be any other way? I thank God for the sheriff's department. I thank God for the, you know, La Quinta police or the Palm Desert police. And I thank God for our military and all that. I'm going to tell you, there's some in here because of what we saw in the abomination that they don't maybe feel that way about the law enforcement. And rightfully so. And they're maybe, you know, pulled out. And so we're not talking about perfection here, but I'm so thankful that I live in a culture where it's not a free-for-all. You see that happening sometimes when, you know, when you, the police pull back and riots break out and, you know, you've got arsony and, and lawlessness and wickedness and all of a sudden you see the human heart exposed. It's pretty devastating. I am so thankful that the law folks don't pull out and that we have rulers that are there. Now, as, as wicked as they may be, they still keep order where people can't just, you know, break down, break down your door and come and take all you have and rape and pillage. So there's that area of rulers or governors or law enforcement, civil authorities, etc. But there's also the church, you know, the the spiritual world of the church, you know, what does this mean? It just means that the, they, you know, we have to recognize that God gives gifts according to the common good. We've, we've talked about that very often. Paul talks about that. These gifts are given for the common good. And what happens? It benefits us all when we submit to those particular gifts. Let me give you an example. So here at Church at the Red Door, when we were setting up, Rick Carlson really helps me a lot with this, setting up our governance. How are we going to, how's this church going to be governed? This is not just a free-for-all in here. I don't know if some of you don't maybe know that. It feels like that because we meet in a lecture hall. We really don't have a building, you know, yet. But all this thing's happening. But there's some real specific governance that's set up around this. And we, and I love submitting to these people that have authority over my life. I submit to the trustees. And then I have people that submit to me as the senior pastor of the church. And there is a mutual co-submission. And none of us, so in an ontological standpoint, in terms of the nature of our being now recreated in Christ, there's no wall. There's no line of division like Jew and Gentile, slave free. None of that exists. 
God, we're all equal in the eyes of God, but we mutually submit to one another under these gift, under the giftedness so that we can operate and function as a body. Does that make sense? And you should be very afraid if I've got nobody to submit to here at this church. You should be very afraid. You say, well, you know, we trust you, Jeff. Well, I appreciate that, but I don't trust Jeff. And I want people with giftedness that can come around and see my blind spots. And then I and Paul and other of the pastoral staff are sometimes able to see your blind spots, things that you may not see about your life or your character, but we care about you and we want to see you formed into the image of Christ or come into the reign and the submission to God's rule in his kingdom. I mean, those are the two things. We're very open about that. So we're not, we're not hiding anything here. Does that make sense? So that's important. So submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and don't use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as, again, do loss, bond slaves of God. It's a metaphor. You're not literally a bond slave, but you count yourself as a slave to God. And of course, then Jesus turns around, no longer do I call you slaves, but I call you my friends. It's a beautiful handoff here. It's beautiful. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Honor the king. Pray for your leaders. I mean, Paul was very clear in his letter to the Romans. You may or may not like the current administration or the last one or any of them, but we are called to pray for them. Daniel 2.21, God raises up kings and he brings them down. He deposes them, whether you like it or not. And I know that's hard to know the interplay between our democracy and our vote and, and that you may be running. And, but once we have them and God's established somebody, pray for them and give honor to them and thank God for them. They, are given, they aren't given the sword for nothing. We're here. Nobody's mauling and killing and, you know, and there's not mayhem and anarchy going on here. Why? Well, here because hopefully because of the spirit of Jesus. But once we leave this place, ah, it could all get a little crazy. We're thankful for that. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but all to all, catch this, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer, now that's a whole nother can of worms that we're going to start getting into the next couple of weeks after, after, this, after this week. We're going to get into this whole idea of suffering, and it is, it is an ongoing battle. I, I read something this morning, came across my news feed, 25 reasons why you don't, you know, there's no reason to believe in God. And they were sent in from all these different places. And most of the, the far majority of the 25 dealt with pain and suffering. If there's pain and suffering, I quit believing in God because of this pain and suffering. And here, this says something crazy. But if you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Finds favor with God. I thought God, if, God, if God's a loving God, why did he allow this stuff to happen anyway? It's an extraordinary thought, isn't it? That God may actually use Satan. Think about this. We're going to talk about this in the next few weeks. May actually use Satan in your life. God uses Satan in your life to do those two things. Bring you into submission to his kingdom and conform you to the image of Christ. So God's not always freaking out if something bad happens to you. I don't know why we have the impression that everything that's pleasant always has to be from God. Well, all good things do come down from God, but there are things that are unpleasant for us in the short term that yield unbelievable fruit for us in the long term, i.e. that. And it's okay. I mean, I'd like to be healed. I mean, I'd like, I'd like that. It's humbling. It's so humbling. Well, what's wrong with humility in the kingdom? There's nothing wrong with humility in the kingdom. I got to limp around, lay in bed all day, and, and I, hate, I hate it. It's just not, you know, the image I want to project. But what image do I want to project? It's birthed in the flesh. What image does, does Jesus, I want Jesus to, you know, Jesus went through a few things. And then he tells us to pick up our cross and follow him. So we'll talk about that over the next few weeks. So it's a real paradox, this idea of, 
of servitude, isn't it? Of being a slave, isn't it? I mean, it really is. I mean, we have very distorted views of leadership. And why is it? Because we are fundamentally what? Self-interested. We don't like the idea of submission and obedience. We're self-ish. We're self-serving. We're self-exalting. And we take selfies. What is our whole culture is, I mean, it just is a, it's a picture of our culture, isn't it? Everybody's going and now they have the selfie sticks and selfies, selfies. I think that, I think Jesus wants to, us to take otheries, you know? <laughs> get your eyes off yourself, E, and get it on the other E. So maybe it'll start right here at Church of the Red Door, 2019. We're taking otheries from now on. We're going to begin to our view of life will be about the other and not always concern, self-concerned. <clears throat> this was the case with Jesus when he was denouncing uh, the religious leaders of his time. Obviously, many of you know this, Matthew 23 is very clear. In speaking to the religious leaders who were very selfie-oriented, but the greatest among you shall be your servant. You guys are all trying to get the, you're trying to take the lead road. You come to a table, you sit in the place of honor. You guys are so self-consumed, even in the context of your religion, that you're missing the whole point. The greatest among you will be your servant. Servant. Now, does this mean that leaders will never fail? No, the Bible's clear. There will be false prophets among you. But it is not a reason to avoid submitting to the spiritual gifts that God gives for your well-being. I am so, I got to tell you, this grates against me. I do everything I can not to ever be called. Even Jesus said, don't be called a leader, right? Don't be called a teacher. He was talking to the religious leaders. You guys are so consumed with your titles. And I always say, let's be titleless. Let's just, you know, let's pull away. And not, but the more I get into this, the more I do realize that there are spiritual gifts that I can both submit to and that others can submit to mine, and in doing so, we all flourish. Do you see that? That is important for us to know. It really is. It also uh, clearly gives us the opportunity to grow and function in grace and forgiveness when leaders fail. It allows us to do that. So that person that's been established in your life that's really serving you and loving you and showing you the scriptures and then you, you, know, you, you see them fail in a character issue or something happens and they're not perfect and you go, see, it's just all a bunch of stuff, you got to realize that no, they will fail. And through that process, that allows the whole community to grow in grace because we always realize that we do serve Jesus because he was the unblemished lamb. We are not. We are under shepherds. We are under leaders. We are not the leader. We have the head. The, the man is Jesus. And we are all co-laborers but under him. And none of us are him. As much as we may try, we're not. There's a few of you that get close, and I, and I know who you are. You're just so Jesus-like, and when I'm around you, I, I grow so much just in watching your life. Many of you have walked with Jesus for 30, 40, 50, 60 years, and it's amazing to me to see how conformed to the image of Jesus that you are. But how does that happen? Why, why will false prophets arise and bad leadership that leads to spiritual what? Abuse. Why does that happen? Because fundamentally we are biblically illiterate, especially in the West. We are. Much of the church is biblically illiterate. You don't own a Bible. You don't read the Bible for yourself. You may come from a background that says you can't, whatever. One of the reasons that we are what we are at Church at the Red Door is that this is always kind of the same. We get up. We have our songs. We open the word, we spend, he talks too long, it's this, you know, 45 minutes, my gosh. And some of you go, yeah, 45 minutes, I wish, 50 minutes, 52, 3, 4 minutes, I see some of the times on this. But why do we do this? Because we, this is the only thing that's going to effectually change your life. We're not here to entertain each other, we're here to love each other, but we're not here to entertain. We're here to, all of a sudden, we come across this, just something, and it's just this, oh my gosh, it's just... I just came across something that's divine and powerful, and I, I just want to stand up and rejoice. And, and you, you come across it in the Word all the time. It's so much more valuable than us being up here and doing little things and all that. It's just the Word, and that's we are a content-driven church, always will be. If you don't like the Word, people come in and out of here all the time, and they will continue to come in and, here, in and out of here all the time. 
because I don't really want to hear the word. You're going to hear the word at Church of the Red Door. Now, you're going to have relationships? Yes. Yeah, you're going to grow in love and community and coffee with people and live life and do and fun things and all that. That's beautiful. But on Sundays, we come, we worship, and we get into the Word so that we're not biblically illiterate, so that you will not be seduced by spiritual chicanery. Are you with me? I don't want you to be seduced by that siren song of, Using God, even using language of the Bible, et cetera, et cetera, and get off into some kind of mysticism that doesn't come back to the two cores, which are what? The kingdom of God, the rule and the reign of God in your life, and you becoming more and more like Jesus, okay? So that's a thing we'll get into in future weeks. Now this issue, again, of slavery. I'm very appreciative to the, the Gospel Coalition. I've read quite a few articles this week even about this whole issue of slavery. Again, our optics are so skewed, and it's probably inseparable from our own experience. And I have some precious friends here that are descendants, I'm sure, of the, the horrors of the African-American victims of the slave trade, chattel slavery, property ownership, the absurdity of that and how violently that comes against the biblical narrative of that we are all created imago Dei. And that's important to understand. So again, doulos can be used in so many different words. And that's used over and over when we see slave. So we ought to know Paul, Mary, even Jesus is referred to as a bond slave. Okay, so what is bond slavery? I don't have time to get into it or that the, in its fullness, but if you are doing your own study, you want to go back, I believe it's Exodus chapter 21, you can go back and look. There was a place where within the context of the, the nation of Israel, someone would get into deep debt. They would make some bad calculations and get themselves in debt, or maybe just a horror, something horrible happened in their lives and they were in deep debt. They could sell themselves into bond slavery, if you will, and then they could live with their master for a designated time. Now, all throughout the Levitical Code, there were places in which this was limited. Seven years, after seven years, they shall be let go. It doesn't matter what the debt is. There was a time limit on how much they could either work off or, but then they were free after that. So that, everybody understood that going on. Also, Jubilee, don't have to get in, time to get into all that. <clears throat> all debts were canceled, etc., etc. What I will tell you is that Paul picks up that metaphorically in the New Testament. And what it was is back then is you would go to someone and at the end of your time, this is beautiful. You want to talk about a predictive prophecy of the cross. This is such a beautiful thing. If you've never heard this, uh, some of you have heard this taught, I'm sure, but to be a bond slave is you would go in and you would say, wait a minute, you know, I've been with you the last seven years. I, I know that I'm free to go and, and, and thank you, but you know what? You've treated me as one of your own. I, I, I've, I've fared very well with you. I have a house, you know, I have a roof over my head and you've treated me like family. I, you know what I do? It's better off with you than it is out there in the rough world. So I'm going to, I choose to be your bond slave forever. And they would actually take that bond slave to the doorpost of their house and they would drive an awl into their ear and they would become, in a sense, the property forever of that master. And there again, what do you have? You have blood dripping down the doorpost of prefiguring of the cross and the blood of Christ coming down the cross. Again, we see that. And another reason, indirectly, not specific, we're more Exodus 12, focused here, the Passover. Again, blood on the doorpost, blood on the doorpost. Again, that's why we're church at the red door. See, what happens is I have chosen in my life to be, I've been released from slavery, Romans chapter 6, into another form of slavery. But now it is a volitional thing. It's better off with you, Jesus, than it was back there. I was a slave of sin. You've released me from sin. And now I am your bond slave forever. And you see that over and over. Uh, I think the letter to the Hebrews, the letter to the Philippians, many of the letters you'll see, Paul, the apostle Paul, the Paul, a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll see it over and over. Even Philippians 2 says that Jesus took the form of a bond slave, the great descent. Can you imagine? The creator of all things becoming a slave to the creation itself. Wow. Can that be true? It is. And that's why he had the power of an indestructible life and exploded out of the grave. It couldn't hold him down. Isn't that beautiful? So 
<clears throat> I want us to think about this uh, not in terms of say, well, why did they not? Again, why not this massive manifesto to say slavery should, you know, it's bad and everything else. Look, I understand, but you've got to understand there were so many forms in the time of Rome, so many forms of slaves, and most of them barbaric and horrific. They were not ethnically driven. Now, that's, the, that's what disassociates Roman slavery from our American experience of slavery, again, an abomination, what the disassociation there that it was not ethnically driven. Now, they would go in at times and conquer other people's tribes, nations, take them as slaves and bring them back, and then and they, they would become slaves of Rome. There were also the gladiatorial slaves. There were sex slaves. This was why Rome eventually crumbled, the great Pax Romana, eventually crumbled because of slavery. But uh, and, and other things that were obviously uh, the far pushed the limits uh, around God's narrative for our lives and that we were created in God's image. So you have to understand that Paul is writing, he's writing instruction. In doing that, he is not tacitly approving of slavery in any form. He's just giving instruction to the current social, societal norms that existed during this time. Now, that brings up a whole nother can of worms is that should our primary thing as being Christians be trying to overthrow societal norms? Well, yes and no. I'm so thankful for guys like Wilberforce who stood up, you know, and gave his life to to bring this slave trade down. Man, I'm grateful for that. Many of people have done that, and there are many people today that are standing against abortion and other issues like that to bring those kinds of things down, those things that are decaying our society, and I believe that with all my heart. But in general, Jesus was like not trying to do an outside-in thing, but trying to do an inside-out thing. He was very much about getting to the human heart. If enough human hearts get got to, thank you for my language here, if enough human hearts are affected by his message of the kingdom, then societal norms will change then. If you just just try to change societal norms, and that's why you get a lot of the zealots and and potentially even Judas Iscariot. Many believe that he was part of this uh, zealotry. Some theologians don't, but part of this zealot campaign. He was all political. If we can just overthrow the Romans, then we'll be all fine. And Jesus just didn't give into that for a minute. He knew that once you threw over one political system, you'd get another one, and it would still be infected by the fallenness of the human heart. So until you get to a heart issue, you still don't solve ultimately anything. Are you with me? So he was, he was giving instruction not approval. That's important to know too. His task obviously was not to approve of slavery, but to transform relationships as well. And I think that's important to say. It still doesn't settle well with me, but I'm going to give you one last line of thinking that may help you think about this from a biblical standpoint. Let me just be clear. The Bible does not support chattel slavery in any way, anyway. And, but it is an indictment that's made against the Bible, uh, and countless people, I'm sure, stay away from it, believing that somehow slavery is lifted up, and then they'll quote a verse or two and say, see, here it says, if you're a master and a slave, the slave needs to be obedient to, its, to his master. See, the Bible is just, it's, it's unreliable. You can't pay attention to the Bible. Let's think of it in terms of a two-mountain concept. Will you mind? Two peaks, if you will. All right, so we've got a big peak over here, and then you've got this long valley, and then you have another peak over here. So the first peak would be the original creation. So if we go back to Genesis 1 and 2, what do we get? Well, Genesis 1, 26, and God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea, etc." And he blessed them, and that's what happened. So the first peak is God is created, man is created in God's image. It was good. And when he finished, he said, this is good. Then they have the fall of Genesis 3, and all men are thrown into, and Cain kills Abel, murder comes up, blood is crying out from the ground. The Bible says in Hebrews as well, this blood cries out from the ground for justice. Jesus would then later come and spill his own blood that would cry out for mercy. Thank goodness. Because we're all guilty. We're all, we all have blood guiltiness on our own hands. But now you find Jesus coming in this valley, and Paul, and Paul in many of his letters, and you see this in Colossians, and then Peter's language that we read, and then also Ephesians 6, you get this language about slavery. So what do you do? You're in the valley. 
this is the way it was, the image of God, this is the way it will be one day. What do we do in the valley? That's the question. Well, there's a numerous things that emerge. Number one, Ephesians chapter 2, which we looked at, I don't want to go into much of it. It says the Jew-Gentile distinction is completely removed. The barrier, the dividing wall between the two is eradicated. So he's beginning to put ethnic groups back together, the Jews and the Gentiles in Christ, and he even calls it one new man. All right? So that's a picture. Galatians 3.28, important to get. There's neither Jew or Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, you are all one in Christ. So that gets back to this ontological submission. You're all one. I mean, there's no, males don't dominate females, masters don't dominate slaves, we're all one. In Christ, we're all one, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, all the class system is eradicated in Christ. Now, let me tell you something, that is a big forerunner of things to come. And let me tell you something, people say, oh, the Bible's pro-slavery. Let me tell you something, the Bible did more right here in Galatians 3 to eradicate that idea of class system that's still prevalent among, among many nations around the world. I mean, you can go, we can go we'll spend some time in India, and I'll show you the class system. I mean, we could spend some time male and female dominance. I mean, let's go spend some time in Saudi Arabia and see what the male-female thing is. That barrier has been eradicated. <clears throat> so that's important. So that's what happens in the valley, but you start to see this climbing out. So if we were to look at these mountains, so let's say that was creation in the beginning on this mountain, and then the fall, and we go down into this deep valley, Paul begins to speak to the culture that is there, and began, we begin to climb out of that. It is what theologians call the already, but the not yet. It's going to be like that again, and we're going to be back to the creation is good. And we see that in Revelation, right? Chapter 7, for instance. But when you, as we're climbing up out of this, there's no manifesto against what we would know as shadow slavery today. But there is a manifesto and laying the groundwork for saying, no, we're all one in Christ. Are you following me? Eventually, we'll get to the peak of that mountain, and that's the future, Revelation 7, verse 9. Here's what John saw, okay? After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, with n- which uh, no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. Okay, you with me? Standing before the throne and before the l- Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. Now, there's, there's that picture. So, in, in, in Genesis 1, we were on top of this mountain. The fall happens. We all go down to the very darkest place. And then Paul begins to, and the Lord, the Holy Spirit, through Paul, begins to drive these stakes into the heart of class system, male, female, slave, free, etc., and saying, look, here's where we're going, where every tribe, every tongue comes together as one, and we are one. We should have a foretaste of that. And I was having a conversation with my friend Robert, you know, this morning. Or, do you feel like one with me? I mean, I hope you do, brother. I mean, because he's like, this is my family, and it is. It's not all the way to the mountain yet, Robert, but I'm telling you, we can taste it, can't we? Where there will be no tribe, no tongue, no ethnic group that will be divided none. So in closing, I would simply say this, you know, there's this little letter that you probably have not spent a whole lot of time with this week, Philemon, and it's one of the pastorals, and many of you might know the story, but it's Paul asking for his slave. Now, this is a Christian with a slave. Now, we don't know anything about that. Is, it, is, it, is he a bondman? Did he come and sell himself into slavery so that he might work off a debt? Was this just a, was this something, we don't know a whole lot about, you know, this Onesimus, you know, who is he? What's the story behind this guy? But listen to the language of Paul if you want to ever say, if if you want to go out into a culture and say, ah, the Bible is, you know, it's anti this and anti that, it's pro-slavery, it's this. Listen to the language of Paul. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, again, see how he identifies himself as being a prisoner, slave, if you will and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our brother and fellow worker, and to Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I thank my God always making... Now, remember, this is just a personal letter. I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith of which you have towards Jesus and toward all the saints, all the saints. Notice the... And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I've come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, my brother. So this guy Philemon is bearing fruit. He's having an effect on the kingdom. People's lives are different because Philemon's a good guy. He's bearing fruit of the kingdom. And yet, therefore, though I have confidence in Christ in order uh, uh, to order you to do what is proper, notice... Here's what's proper. Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten, excuse me, I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I've sent him back to you in person, and that is sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf, he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel, but without your consent, I didn't want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be, in effect, by compulsion, but by your own free will. For perhaps he was, for this reason, separated from you for a while. Now, we don't know, but maybe he ran away. Maybe Onesimus ran away, and then he found Paul in prison. Maybe, some, maybe that's what happened, and he found Paul, and then he began to serve Paul, and now Paul's writing on his behalf back to his master. He says, for perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while. In other words, God's sovereign in all these things. God's doing things you have no idea about, Philemon. That you would have, have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I love that. Now Paul's going to say, you owe me, brother. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self as well. Manipulation a little bit there, Paul, in the spirit. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ, having confidence in your obedience. Now he's asking for Philemon to submit in obedience to his request. Submission, obedience, ah. I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. And at the same time, also prepare me a lodging for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Paphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, greets you and Mark and Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of Jesus be with your spirit. So what do we get from here? Well, Paul has authority and yet he's a man under submission. See, the Bible says, submit yourself one to another. See, the overriding principle here is mutual submission one to another. That's the kingdom ethos. You know how the kingdom operates? We don't have a hierarchy in terms of, oh, you can't, you can't question that. And we do that within a church? No way. We all have different gifts for the what? For the betterment of everybody. And if we walk into the fullness of those gifts, there's a natural tendency that when another person has a gift, I submit to you in that gift. I, su I just submit to you. It's just natural. I, I, I look to humble myself and submit myself to other people. But some of you have been abused. Some of you this will never ring true with. You're just like, nope, I am not. I don't like those words. I'm not. And Bruce and Gaynor did a beautiful job two weeks ago about talking you know, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. If you didn't see that, go back and listen to it and then have a conversation with them. They're here. So uh, submit to your husband. Wives, well, uh, no, 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 no. I, I was so abused. I've, I've been through several abusive relationships. The last thing I'm going to do. Are you with me that there is a godly way to be obedient and submissive? And then there's a satanic strategy to bring abuse spiritually, emotionally, and physically. Can you make a distinction? And because you have been abused, can you not move into a place of gray? There's just so much safety. So we'll close this as we started it. Children, obey your parents. My, my kids don't have to obey me, but Tess, you know, is about the last one. Tatum's about to be gone. Z's about to be gone. Uh, Tess is there. Does she have safety in obeying her mother 
and me? I mean, she's 13. Well, I'm not going to do that. I don't like submission and obedience. And she runs out and she's going to do whatever she's going to do. She's going to go wherever she's going to. Some of you have done that and you said, yeah, it wasn't. it's a pretty scary world out there. Think of the same thing as it relates to the submission to the Father and to his kingdom. See, at the very core of Christianity, if you call yourself a Christian, you've already said, I choose to be a submitted one. It's a false Christianity if you think you've not signed up for that. You signed up for maybe a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, maybe some way in which God could help you with your life and give you some direction and kind of just be your cheerleader. That is not biblical Christianity. Can we establish that? That is not. When you signed up to say, I trust Jesus for my salvation, I bring nothing to this, I am completely and utterly inadequate for the task, I am totally dependent upon you, you then now move from that place of salvation to a place of slavery, if you will. You are now enslaved to the one who bought you. What does Paul say? You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, therefore glorify God in your body. So now you're a living sacrifice. You want true biblical Christianity? That's what it is. I give myself. You, my money's yours. My time yours is my place is yours. I'm totally submitted to you. And then I also know that there are people in the kingdom, both in the local congregation or around, that I will also mutually submit to, knowing that your gifts flow through us all. And I gloriously love to do that. Because through the humility of the process of submission comes, well, you look, start to look like Jesus. Who, didn't, who did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped. I, I, just, I still don't understand that. But Paul says that in Philippians. I mean, I try to understand it and I kind of get it, but he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. But he lowered himself. He descended and took on the form of a slave or doulos or bond slave. Wow. That makes sense? I hope I could turn something out of that slavery passage to, to help us understand the kingdom of heaven. Let's close in this worship song, and uh, I'm just going to kind of kneel down so I don't get in your way, and then I'll, I'll close. And if, in fact, no, I'm going to hobble off, and Paul, would you come up after this and just close us in prayer? Would you mind doing that? I love you people. Do you know that? Do you know how much Jesus loves you? You have no comprehension how much he loves you. If you don't know him this morning, give your life to him. Give your life to him. Just say, God, I give my life to you. I'm, I'm so sorry. Just give your life to him as we worship.